Texas after oil prices hit a new record high. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And our subject uh, on Back Chat this morning is uh, sexual violence against women. Um, researchers uh, say that uh, such a phenomenon remains a serious uh, issue in Hong Kong with their latest survey finding that 37% of respondents had experienced uh, such abuse. Uh, a number of uh, women's uh, organisations were involved uh, in this research, including the Hong Kong Federation of Women's Centres uh, and uh, Lingnan University's Department of uh, Sociology. Uh, and social policy. And, and just a, a few details on the survey. Uh, more than 1,000 women, 1,044 women and girls aged between 15 and 64 uh, last year were surveyed and it was found that 27% of those had experienced uh, violence inflicted by an intimate partner, including husbands and boyfriends. And it also uh, transpires that the prevalence of sexual violence against women uh, were similar to findings observed in a study conducted in 2013. Um, we're now uh, joined on the line by uh, Annie Chan, Associate Professor at the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at Lingnan University, and uh, C.C. Liu from the Hong Kong Women's Coalition on Equal Opportunities. Um, good morning to you both. Um, perhaps, uh, um, um, good morning. Uh, perhaps uh, um, Annie Chan first. So it seems that there's been uh, no improvement in the situation then um, in the past nine years. Uh, that's, that's a little bit uh, discouraging, isn't it? And, and how can we explain that? Um, yeah, I think globally, violence against women uh, in terms of sexual violence and intimate partner violence have always been an issue. So I think Hong Kong is no exception to that. Um, and the, uh, the, the fact the situation has not improved, as in the figures have not reduced. Um, I think there are many reasons to that. One is that the issue really is still very prevalent. Uh, and second is that there are more women who are aware um, that this is what they're suffering is called violence. Uh, they have a name to it. They know what it is, and they're more able to identify it. So I think both factors uh, play a role in explaining why the figures have not really changed very much over the past nine years. Without meaning to uh, diminish the, the trauma or anything that people can uh, ex experience owing to uh, verbal abuse, but you do, you do sort of uh, put verbal abuse in the same category uh, as assault, don't you? And, th and then things like upskirt photography. I mean, is it is it actually, um, you know, is is that really the right way to go? I mean, I mean, assault sounds as though it's a worse, uh, you know, a worse offence than verbal abuse. Um, if we go to the internationally acknowledged and agreed upon definitions of sexual violence, uh, you will find, for example, in the World Health Organization, the definitions of sexual violence um, is not exclusively about mm. physical violence. It includes any kind of non-consensual act that has a sexual intention or sexual meaning that is um, imposed upon another person uh, without their consent. So in that sense, um, upskirt photo taking, uh, what, which we call image-based sexual violence, is in fact a form of uh, sexual violence and is now in the law of Hong Kong um, and is uh, punishable up to five years imprisonment. 
Yeah. Uh, but how uh, how are we dealing with that? Have you seen a, a lot of cases, a lot of prosecution um, lately? Um, I'm also involved with some work with another organization um, which provides service to men who are perpetrators of sexual violence. And according to that organization, that's called Long Teen, um, it's part of the Caritas uh, organization. And they said that after the law, the new law on image-based sexual violence has come out um, since um, October last year, the number of prosecutions have been in, um, there have been prosecutions, but I don't think the police have been publicizing it very much. And the public is certainly not very much aware of um, what's going on since this legisl- legislation has, has um has been passed in Latico. So uh, I think it definitely is a serious issue. And in the past, before this uh, new legislation on image-based sexual violence, but in Hong Kong it's called voyeurism. Um, so before this uh, amendment, men who take photo, upskirt photos of women would be prosecuted under other charges, like a misdemeanor in public and, and um, disorderly conduct and loitering, that kind of thing. So actually a lot of this kind of um, sexual violence, they have gone... Uh, unnoticed because we did not have a law that calls it what it is. Also, uh, one of the remarkable findings from your report, well, on the surface of it, remarkable, 75% of uh, victims uh, failed to react uh, when the uh, violence occurred. So what is the explanation for that? Well, actually, this finding is in line with international research on women's reaction and responses (coughs) and coping mechanisms uh, when faced with sexual violence or violence of other kinds as well. So uh, for, for that, in this regard, it's not actually that surprising. And um, in our research, when we, we, we measure it in two ways, one is at the instant that this event happens, did the, did the victim manage to have a kind of reaction, right? Did they yell? Did they run? Did they do something, anything? And then we also ask whether they responded to it in any way after the incident. So actually in both uh, reaction at the time and response after the incident, the, the rates are, are quite low. So you mentioned just now that 70% did not react. It's actually not surprising because upskirt um, photo or being uh, touched in public, right, being groped, for example. Very often these things happen in the split of a second um, and very often the women would ask themselves, oh, did that really happen? What was that? And it would take them some time before they realized, oh, is that really true? Someone just groped me or I see that man taking a photo of me, right? So not being able to react immediately in that instant is actually um, not surprising at all. Is there any sort of uh, uh, official advice on what to do in such circumstances? Um, Because there are many different kinds of sexual violence, but if we are referring to the the type that I was mentioning just now, like being perpetrated by um, a stranger in a public space, then I think the women really need to trust their own judgments and um, react immediately um, because it is really important to do this so that bystanders can also help them. And of course, bystanders also have a very huge responsibility in making sure that this type of violence against women in public spaces um, is not tolerated. So I, I would advise women to trust, trust their own judgment. And, and what, what is the age group of women that, that are more prone to, to such um, violence? Um, in general, for all types of sexual violence, uh, we did run some analysis on this, and younger women do tend to be more likely to have experienced sexual violence in their lifetime. 
Uh, well, also with us is uh, C.C. Liu from the uh, Hong Kong Women's Coalition on Equal Opportunities. Uh, good morning to you. So, um, I mean, are we talking now mostly uh, domestically or, or does this also apply to situations in the workplace? Um, yes, well, I think, you know, um, it's more like, you know, when we talk about violence against women, um, in the research we um, um, try to look at the issues of women witnessing um, um, sexual violence as well as women um, witnessing intimate partner violence. And so, so the um, sample we covered um, um, actually, you know, covers from, you know, women from all sorts of like um, background and also age group. Um, for us, um, I also work for the Hong Kong Federation of Women's Centers and our main um, target um, um, beneficiaries are women um, who are, you know, working at home, actually homemakers, full-time homemakers, um, caregivers, taking care of their family members. So um, we also receive, you know, um, assistance or calls for assistance from um, women who are witnessing um, domestic violence or abuses from their partners. So um, actually, this is actually something um, that we see happening at home as well, especially during COVID. We saw, um, uh, you know, a, a, the, the number of calls asking for assistance from um, domestic violence cases has actually doubled um, when compared with um, non-COVID times. So um, this this is actually the trend that we are witnessing, especially, you know, COVID is still bothering us now. Um, so I think, you know, it's common that, you know, women in Hong Kong are witnessing some kind of, you know, violence um, from, you know, the workplace to home to, you know, even public places like, you know, harassment, you know, in public transports at schools, etc. Um, that's something that we find out from our study um, with Professor Chen. When, when there's more violence during COVID, is it uh, mainly because uh, people stay home uh, during this uh, lockdown and so homes are small and then, you know, there'll be conflict, etc.? Yes, um, that's what um, the women told us um, because, you know, um, they are facing um, issues like, you know, um, people are stuck at home, family members are stuck at home, um, kids doesn't need to, don't need to go to school, they stayed at home um, for online classes and, you know, um, because that was the first time like two years ago they have done this. You know, um, so there are some sort of adjustment that they have to settle. And for some families, I mean, they don't even have a proper device for online classes. And, um, and because the pandemic has also, you know, caused some businesses to close down. So people are facing unemployment, unemployment or unemployment. So, um, economic, there are some sort of like economic pressures as well, um, that they are facing in the family. So all these, like, you know, as pressures are escalating, then, you know, even a small conflict could spark out, um, some kind of like violence. And, um, sometimes we also receive, you know, cases saying that, you know, they, different family members hold different standards of, you know, um, hygiene. Say, for example, it's um, a family member just um, came home. Um, there are requests, you know, asking them to, you know, take a shower immediately. But then some people may say, okay, let me just take a break, like, you know, do something else. And then, and then you know, I, I'll take a shower. You know, things like, little things like these could also cause, like, um, spackle those um, conflicts. And then, um, especially, you know, for families, you know, who are 
already in some kind of you know higher conflict families. So these are these kind of you know trivial things sometimes um, could spark out um, into you know violences. Uh, Professor Chan, you've said the, that many of the victims are afraid of uh, speaking out because of a, what you call a, a, a victim-blaming culture in society. Um, can you explain a little bit more about how that works? Yeah, we also asked uh, in the survey, we asked the respondents, uh, for those who did not respond or did not react at the time, we asked them why they didn't do so, and quite a significant percentage of them said uh, they don't want to come across as being uh, a troublemaker. Uh, they were afraid that if they tell someone about it, they would not believe them, right? So this is something, uh, this is good for thought. We have to try to put ourselves in their shoes and say, well, I've just been, you know, molested in public. Someone just grabbed me or someone just took a picture of me or someone just hit me at home, right? Why, why would I think that other people would not believe me if I tell them, okay? So I think if, if we put ourselves in their shoes and start thinking in that way, then we may try to have some understanding uh, of what this victim-blaming culture actually is. Because what they are saying is that nobody will believe me because people might think that I'm just causing trouble to, to get something that I want. People might think that I deserve this treatment. I must have annoyed my husband in some way for him to hit me, right? So because that kind of um, attribution is, is so widespread and so normal, so it, it really uh, makes it difficult for women to, 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 to want to come forward. It, make, it really makes them think twice because if they do speak out and people do not believe them, it is they who have to suffer and not the perpetrators of violence. Right. Uh, both of you are advocates. Um, today is International Women's Day. So when we think about uh, empowering women, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, empowering them to seek help uh, when necessary, empowering them to speaking up, uh, what, what could we do? Um, perhaps um, any first? Yeah, I think um, empowerment, we always think about it as an individualized thing, like, oh, I have to empower myself, I have to become stronger. But when there are so many societal forces or forces outside of the individual working against the individual in such a systematic and patent way, not just in Hong Kong, but globally against all women and all marginalized groups, then I think everybody, we, whether you're a woman or not, you know, no matter what age group you are, whether you have been a victim of violence, we all have to, we all have a part to play to empower uh, women and also empower the movement um, against violence. I think we all have to think that we, we, we're all stakeholders in this and we all have a part to play. Yes, and Cecilio? Um, for us, like one of the work approaches, um, we have the idea or, you know, kind of like the doctrine, believing that the personal is political. So it's actually echoing um, what Professor Chan has just mentioned. And um, in our um, work, we kind of like, you know, laid it to three layers. First, we target on individual level. And then second, on group level, group level, like women as a group. And then third, as a, you know, um, community and society level. So for group level, we um, do consciousness raising with women, like, for example, women who um, have, um, you know, who are survivors of domestic violence. We, we talk to them. I'm, I'm, of course, you know, care, concern, and also put it into their shoes to understand why they have that kind of feeling, understand them first, and then walk with them together to um, handle all the difficulties. And also, you know, to let them know that it is not their fault. It is not their mistake. Usually, you know, um, we're surrounded by all the beliefs in the society that kind of, like, um, 
shape, you know, um, shape her into that situation. So that's the first thing that we do, like on individual level, and then as a group level, we group women with similar background, you know, who face similar like incidences together, and then so so that they know that they are not alone. There are other women um, also, you know, facing the similar situation with them, so that they have friends, they have social circles and social circles um, to support them and to work together to support each other, and then third, we have to target, you know, um, like changing, you know. Um, stereotypes in the society, we identify whether there are gaps in our policies, in our laws that, you know, have to be changed in order to, you know, um, improve the situations of women um, and, and eventually to achieve gender equality. So that's like, you know, all from individual to, you know, society level, these are all the things that we have to do and everybody has the responsibility in, you know, um, um, making our society a better world for everybody, not just women. And how do you go about changing those attitudes and misconceptions? Well, um, first one, we have to voice out because, you know, um, for us, like doing advocacy, um, one of the ways is to say meaningful things every day. You know, we the changes start from us um, individuals. You know, if we believe in if we believe in something that you know is correct, or that that are the you know ideas that we we have to pursue, then we have to do it. And we also have to you know talk to people nearby us, you know, around us, and then you know try to persuade them to to believe. And also not just talk, but also to embrace the ideas by ourselves. I mean, we 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 do what we preach actually. Um, so so starting from our own to do that, and then you know. Um, um, hoping to do, you know, um, 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 other platforms like, you know, working with, say, um, um, media, um, you know, like you, you know, so as to amplify our voices so that others could hurt, could be, could hear, you know, what we're talking about and to, to see, you know, what we're talking about is um, something that, you know, they also um, believe in and, you know, um, um, so that's the thing that, you know, we, you know, starting from individuals to try to impact others to do that. And, you know, all those public education um, um, methods could also be used. And in one of our recommendations, we also recommend the government to review the sex um, education, you know, policies um, in formal schoolings. So there are, you know, always many things that we could do. Um, but the first thing is, you know, start from ourselves and influence others nearby us. And you, uh, you want the government to put more resources into this uh, issue, basically, and uh, provide emergency financial support and shelters for those yeah. who suffer sexual violence. Um, so, um, OK, there, there aren't enough such facilities at the moment, then, obviously. Um, well, first, emergency um, um, financial support, that's something that, you know, we want the government to, you know, allocate resources for, because, you know, um, we face many women, you know, who want to leave the abusive relationship, but because they are financially dependent on the abuser. So that that's one of the reasons that they, they have to, you know, stay into the, into the abusive relationship. But if we have um, those, like, emergency funds that, you know, are specifying this, this cause, um, you know, this, this purpose to support, then people know that that's some kind of, like, support that they could get. Um, 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 and they could go for it. 
Um, so I think this is something um, that's also important. I mean, of course, there are many different like emergency support um, um, run by different you know organizations. I mean, the society that they are not you know specifically serving this purpose. And um, I mean, if you if you think from the shoes of um, women, you know, undergoing um, violence, you know, that's a kind of like you know shaming that you know they have from what we you know discovered from the, the survey. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's, it is difficult, you know, if they have to go to a you know multi-service organization saying that, okay, I am a victim of um, domestic violence or I am a victim of sexual violence, I need help. It is difficult for them to seek help. And and besides, you know, um, the professionals may not be trained in that area. So if we have um, funding specifically, um, um, you know, supporting victims um, on this purpose, you know, that would give a clear message um, to the to the survivors that they know where to seek help and also mm-hmm. to the society as well, saying that this is something wrong, this is something yeah. that we have to um, um, support. Mm. Um, Annie Chan, you said that you also work with the men. Uh, there are non-profits working with the men. How can we change the mindset of um, men then? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my experience in working with men, they are uh, the men who take upskirt photos of women. Um, and I have actually another research which I interviewed 50 of these men, and the research report will come out sometime soon next month, I hope, after this one. Um, and what I find is that men find it impossible to talk about these things that they do. It's impossible for them to talk about it to anybody. If for women who are victims of violence, they could still talk to somebody about it. But for men who are doing this, it is impossible, right? So I'm not in any way condoning or excusing their behaviors as they themselves would not. But uh, this is really something we have to think seriously about. Like if a man has a habit or he enjoys taking up skirt photos of women and he knows that it's a problem, what does he do? What can he do? Absolutely nothing until he gets caught. Then he knows, oh, okay, I can go to the So do so you think it's a psychiatric problem? It's not a psychiatric problem. It's a societal problem. Mm-hmm. It can be a psychiatric problem for a very small minority of people. But actually, it is a societal problem because our society condones casual photo taking. Our society condones uh, taking photos of women uh, and, their, and their bodily parts. And our society condones um, treating um, taking pictures of women and consuming women's body as, as a way of spending our leisure time. So <laughs> this is a, a very huge systemic problem, and it's certainly uh, Hong Kong is certainly not the only society that's affected by it. And how about legal deterrence? Is there enough protection under the law? I mean, should we be increasing the penalties for sex-related offences? Yeah, I mean, taking image-based sexual violence as an example, like I said earlier, the newly amended legislation on voyeurism um, in October is definitely very much welcomed by all of us, um, you know, um, myself and Mr. Liu, I'm sure. Um, But I I wonder how how many people actually know about it, right? How how much effort has been put in promoting that there's this new legislation and the and the penalties are very, uh, very different. And also, this is now a sex crime. It's a sex crime. It's no longer just taking photos or invasion of other people's privacy. And being convicted of a sex crime has very different consequences of being convicted of loitering or, um, you know, um, inappropriate behavior in public, that sort of thing, right? So I think people really need to be made aware of this. 
Okay, well, thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning, and we'll look forward to your uh, next report coming out. Uh, Annie Chan, their Associate Professor at the Department of uh, Sociology and Social Policy at Lingnan University, and thanks very much to Cece Liu uh, from the Hong Kong Women's Coalition on Equal Opportunities. And uh, just before we bring the programme to an end this morning, um, I have a, a number of uh, emails uh, left over from our uh, earlier discussion on the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. Uh, I'll try and get through. I'll try and get through some now. Um, uh, so. Uh, so Din writes in to say uh, Ms Wu, who's a, who was a guest on our programme yesterday, is totally wrong to suggest that the Hong Kong SAR government prioritised the vaccination of the elderly from the outset of the pandemic. It did not. The booking system was open to all ages and there was a step-by-step -step process. Other countries prioritised the elderly and the first ever COVID-19 vaccination in the world was a 90-year-old English lady. And it goes on to uh, quote... Uh, that lady who was uh, vaccinated in UK. Um, Richard says, uh, uh, good morning, uh, I'm aircrew and that's it spot on. He's reacting to a, re a, a remark by uh, yesterday's co-host uh, Mike Rouse. He says, uh, every time I leave my home in uniform and go to work, my biggest worry is not uh, that uh, day to the challenge of my job, but will I end up in Penny's Bay? Um, and James says, uh, I know it's difficult for the Hong Kong administration to consider two things at once, but surely the standard of elderly care and standards of care at elderly homes must be reviewed. As we know from population surveys, for at least the past 20 years, there's an ageing population and no longer middle-class families are able to accommodate parents and grandparents. Why is the Hong Kong administration again on the back foot? Suddenly so much money and support for supermarkets, hotels and taxis, but not the older people in our community who through their life have contributed so much. Um, uh, a message here on our Facebook page uh, from, let's see, uh, uh, this from, actually I, I don't quite get that so I will, <laughs> I'll skip over that for now. Uh, so uh, one here from uh, Vic says, um, it is okay to die now because of COVID-19. You did not uh, die earlier due to flu or other conditions. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Alonso says, uh, I read the following headline on Bloomberg TV this morning. Uh, Hong Kong has the, has the world's highest COVID death rate with 27 per 1 million people, double that of number two Latvia. Uh, why hasn't a single government official been forced to resign as a result of this embarrassing, unacceptable and tragic statistic? As we know, the majority of Hong Kong's COVID deaths are unvaccinated elderly residents. Common sense would suggest that many of these fatalities could have been avoided if the government had heeded the repeated warnings from experts such as Professor Cowling and incentivised locals to get jabbed sooner. For example, government should have introduced its vaccine passport scheme for restaurants, malls, etc. far earlier than this year. It could also have linked its consumption voucher programme with vaccinations, as recommended by a number of your guests. Somebody or, bo or bodies, our bodies from government should uh, fall on his or her, or her sword for the complacent, unimaginative and lackadaisical approach that it adopted to accelerate our vaccination programme. And finally, uh, 
Finally, uh, oh, sorry, one more. Phil says, uh, Mike is right. I guess that's at Mike Rouse. What's the point of two weeks quarantine on arrival? It's nonsense now. Policy should change. And finally, uh, for this morning, uh, Eve says, uh, it's apparent that government officials are now listening to the COVID update session. Let me explain. For several months, your guests have been saying 21 days quarantine for vaccinated close contacts at Penny's Bay is unnecessary. Now, finally, rules have changed for close contacts and even uh, elective home confinement for some lucky ones. Mass testing by location made logical sense, but government insisted on testing by ID numbers. Now that's changed too. Maybe having a government official and a medical expert as guests could create a balanced discussion. Uh, on a lighter side, we had a Marie Antoinette moment last weekend. Uh, there was no bread available, but plenty of cakes. That's from Eve. Thank you. Thanks to uh, all of our listeners and everybody who's uh, been in contact. And thanks very much uh, to uh, thanks very much to my co-host this morning, Ada Wong. Thank you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. And we'll see you next uh, Tuesday. Uh, a quick look at the weather before we go to the uh, new summary and morning brew. Uh, it's going to be uh, fine and fine and dry, uh, rather cool this morning. Uh, top temperature will be around uh, 23 degrees, uh, moderate to fresh. Uh, uh, northeasterly winds, the outlook fine and dry in the next couple of days. Uh, cool in the morning, temperature difference between day and night, relatively large. Humid and foggy during the weekend to early next week. It's currently uh, 17 degrees, humidity 54%, and the red fire danger warning is in effect. Given the volatility of the pandemic, please get the third COVID-19 vaccination dose soon. The antibody level will drop over time after receiving a vaccine. Getting the third jab gives extra protection to guard against the virus. Most importantly, it reduces the risks of severe disease and death. The mutant strains are highly contagious. Get the first and second doses soon if you haven't done so and receive the third one on time to protect yourself and those around you. Enhance protection. Get all three doses. The new summary with Andrew Shirovsky. Hong Kong people have been making use of a new self-reporting platform for COVID-19 self-tests. Three hours after it, after it went online at six last night, the platform showed a queuing number of more than 240,000. IT expert Francis Fong from the Information Technology Federation said the site appeared to be working smoothly. The United Nations head of humanitarian affairs has made an emotional pl a plea for civilians in Ukraine to be spared, describing how millions of ordinary lives have been shattered. At an emergency meeting of the Security Council in New York, Martin Griffiths calls for civilians to be allowed safe passage out of areas under Russian attack on a voluntary basis. And Russia has warned that the price of oil could hit 300 U.S. dollars a barrel if the West goes ahead with an oil embargo against Moscow. I'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Hi. Good morning. And good morning to you, too. How are you doing? Excellent. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to your show. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning, welcome to Tuesday and International Women's Day. It's Morning Brew. 
I'm Phil Whelan. Jared Watt will be laying down the Aussie tracks for you and all the news that's fit to broadcast at 10.40 today. Because that's what we do after 11. Paul French reads part two of The Lady from Hong Kong. Seto Jin is back in court, charged with drug smuggling. Meanwhile, her lover and... Drugs kingpin, Chung Lei, is now California's most wanted man. You can listen to this on Facebook Live as well, about 11.10 this morning. After 11.30, Dr. Marion Pierce will be with us, live from New Zealand. Today, we're joined from the UK by Chloe Hatton. She's a PhD student from the University of Hong Kong who's studying wildlife